Okay. Daniel, where does Daniel fit in the timeline of things? Well, if you take a look at the big timeline of things, you can see the Old Testament covers a lot of, a lot of things. It talks about the creation. In Genesis alone, it talks about the creation. It talks about the flood, the scattering of the people, the, uh, all the patriarchs beginning at Abraham, the promises that were made to Abraham, and how they were eventually fulfilled through Jesus Christ. And then we move into the Exodus. We know that uh, the family of uh, Abraham's descendants, uh, Jacob and all his kids went to Egypt, and then we see that they came out of Egypt. And so we had the book of Exodus and Leviticus, where the law was given to them, they become a people of God, tabernacle was made, tabernacle was built, and then they start on the move to the promised land, which is what it was all about. But they, they uh, ran into some issues, and those issues were talked about in Numbers and Deuteronomy where they were supposed to go take the land, but then they decided that they would believe the 10 spies instead of the two spies. And so God said, because of your unbelief, you're gonna wonder for 40 days, 40, one day, you know, one year for every day that you were there going to spy out. So it turned out to be 40 years. We finally get to the point where everybody over 20 died and uh, we just have Joshua and Caleb left. And now they're getting ready to be led into the land of Canaan, the land of promise, but Joshua, which we see the conquest of the promised land in Joshua. Then we have a period of the judges, which is about 400 years. Ruth fits in that period, particular time period. And then they asked for a king under Samuel. And so we have the United Kingdom in First and Second Samuel. We have the divided kingdom, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. I put in there the writing prophets that were talked about in that particular time, Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, and Micah. And then finally, Israel falls to Assyria in 721, leaving Judah all by herself to exist for another 120 or so years, a little longer than that, I guess. But then Judah alone, we have the, we have the fall of two kings in Second Chronicles. I have no clue what that's talking about. We have, oh, the fall of Judah is recorded in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. We also have the writing prophets of Nehemiah, and, I mean, uh, Jeremiah, which was just covered in our class, Zephaniah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. And now we get to the period of, we have a captivity period of about 70 years. That's now where Daniel, the book of Daniel, fits into this period of captivity. As Jonathan discussed, God had promised that they were going to suffer a 70-year captivity, but he said a remnant will return. And we're getting ready for that remnant to return, but the captivity is going to take place first. And so you have Babylon serving in, Daniel serving in Babylon. You have Ezekiel, who's taken in the second wave as they went to Babylon, is serving with the common people over in Babylon as well. And then you have the return of the people from Babylon, at least those who wanted to return from Babylon back into Judah. And you also have the writing prophets of Ezra, Haggai, Zechariah, Esther, uh, well, Esther, the book of Esther, Nehemiah, and Malachi. And then we get into this period after the close of Malachi of a period of about 400 years of, quote, biblical silence. That means we have no recorded um, 
incidences of historical or of inspired books that tell us God's perspective of things. And so it's just called this period of silence. And we're actually going to talk about it a little. Finally, we come to the life of Christ. Everything about this book that you read is all about the life of Christ. It is nothing more, nothing less. It's not a history book, even though it contains history. It's not a book that uh, is a scientific book, even though there's science in there. It's not a literature book, even though there's great literature. It is a book all about God's plan of redemption. From the time, everything that has to affect, that God wants us to know about his plan, he lets us know right there. And then, of course, we have the early church, the epistles, and now we're li living in the kingdom ourselves. So that's where Daniel is. Big, big, big picture. <coughs> Who was Daniel? Well, obviously, Daniel is the main character in the book, right? Kind of a trick question, isn't it? He is, but the real main character is God. Because if you looked at my, I gave you a little glimpse of this. If you looked at the syllabus, I said, here's what we're going to cover. God, chapter one, God providentially provides for Daniel and his three friends. Chapter 2, God provides Daniel. Chapter 3, God rescues Daniel. Chapter 4, God provides Daniel. Chapter 5, God again enables Daniel. Chapter 6, God rescues Daniel. Right on down the line. This is all about God because it is God's plan. And so, yes, I would say Daniel is the main mortal character <laughs> for sure. But if you look at the big scheme of things, which kind of gets into the purpose of the book, it is all about Jehovah God taking care of his people and, and, know, and we can learn a lot of things from that. Uh, Daniel was a young man. He was taken from Jerusalem. We're going to go about that in chapter 1. He was taken from Jerusalem as a captive um, and taken to Babylon at a very young age. It happened around the third year of Jehoiakim's reign. And I quoted uh, chapter 1, verse 4. These are the kinds of people that they were looking for. These are not the kind of people that they would become. These are the kinds of people that they looked for among that group of young men who were in Jerusalem. And they were young men with no blemish, good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had the ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and the literature of the Chaldeans. Now, we all have kids like that, right? Who knows? We want to have kids like that. That would be a great description of our own children that they should shoot for. But these are the people that they were told, look among the people in Judah that's left, and I want you to pick these people and take them. Their training most likely occurred in the king's palace there in Babylon, and it was supposed to be a three-year training. And according to the Antiquities of Josephus, uh, he makes a comment. Was it true or not? I don't know. But uh, he did say that Babylon, I mean, that Daniel appeared to be someone of royal or at least noble descent. And that does make sense, but I just threw that in there free charge. Uh, but this is all we know about Daniel. We don't have anything about his family. We don't have anything about his lineage. We don't hear anything about what happens even after Daniel dies. We don't even have a record of Daniel dying. But so it's, it's an interesting book because of that. But it doesn't have to have all those details for us to understand what God wants us to learn. 
we see that he did gain a great reputation among the Babylonians fairly quickly. And when we get to those chapters, we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, because he was able to interpret visions and dreams as recorded in chapters 2 through 5. He also had the ability that God blessed him with of, uh, to predict the future of the Babylonian nations and other nations. And then the eventual triumph of God's own messianic kingdom, which is often referred to in some of the chapters 7 through 12. Uh, he did work for the Babylonian Empire eventually after his training was completed, and he spent a short time working for the Medo-Persian Empire. His career in Babylon spanned over 70 years. So if you... If you guesstimate that he was maybe 14, and I'll just go 15 years, young person like that. Let's say he's 15. 15 and 70 is 85. So we have a person that we're talking about that is in his teens probably, maybe, in, maybe even a little older, all the way up to 85 plus years of age. And we're going to see some of those times where some of the events happen, and once we put it on the timeline, we're going to go, whoa, I don't know if I ever knew that or not. Because it's going to be very, very interesting how he deals with all of this. But since he is in the Babylonian Empire, I did want us to kind of look at one thing about how Babylon came to power. Because it's, it's very interesting. Um, the Babylonians lived basically in tribes on the lower out, outskirts of the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers. Um, which, you know, if we're looking on a map of Israel, it's kind of like up here. All right. Hope you got that one. And um, around 770 B.C., you have this. I don't even know, I'm not even going to pronounce this, these guys' names. I'm going to call him Arab, whatever his name is. Ereba, or I don't know what his name, Marduk Rose, and he was kind of considered to be the true founder of a particular dynasty, and he was in existence from about 769 to 760. I'm not, I'm not including everybody's name. If I did everybody's name, you would have a list a mile long of everybody that came into power. And didn't you major in world history? Yeah. I didn't major in world history. You just history? If you, if you want to know the details, ask to Daniel, okay? <laughs> he told me he did history, so I'm going to put it on the own. Um, and then in 747, not airplanes, but 747 B.C., another guy named, I'm going to call him Nabo, like Dabo, you know, the Clemson coach, I'm going to call him Nabo. NASA rises to power, and then it's interesting with this guy. He helped the Chaldeans form this anti-Assyrian movement and was pretty successful with it. Remember, the Syrians are in power, but the Babylonians are arising. Now, God said that was going to happen too. And God's making all this happen. But it's interesting how it does happen. If we skip down to about 722, we have Merodach Baladin. He sees the throne of the city of Babylon. And then he became control of the Babylonian uh, Empire, as we knew at that time. That was historically one year before the fall of Israel in 721. So there's a lot going on in Israel and Judah. But in addition to that, the world is still happening outside of Israel and Judah. Babylon's rising, and this guy comes to power. He is mentioned in 2 Kings chapter 20, by the way. <clears throat> 
He is known for being the first of the Babylonian kings to kind of get all these tribes to go, we need to work together because I don't like Assyria and you don't either. And I don't like you and you don't like me, but we have a common enemy. And you know how that works. And once you have common enemies, even enemies tend to come together, even among tribes, and they start working together to fulfill their purpose. 16 more rulers will come to power between this guy and seven and 625. Because 625 is when we really want to start focusing on some things. And um, we, in 625, we have a gentleman by the name of Nabo Polasar. I don't know whatever his name is. Polasar. Polasar Nabo. I'm just going to Nabo Po. Okay. Nabo Po. He comes to power. He seizes the throne of the city of Babylon. Everybody loves to seize the throne of Babylon, and that makes them known as the person who has the power. And so he comes to power, and he begins what is known as the Neo-Babylonian dynasty. Sometimes, if you look it up in reference books, it's called Dynasty X, Dynasty 10, the Chaldean dynasty. It lasted from 626 to 539 B.C. The most important thing you need to know about him is the next one. He's the father of Nebuchadnezzar. So Nebuchadnezzar is going to come on the scene because of this guy. Now, there were some key events in his life that have some bearing upon what we're going to be looking at. With the help of the Medes and the Scythians, he besieged Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria, and it fell in three whopping months. That's pretty quick. Pretty quick. Now, the Assyrians, they weren't totally defeated. They withdrew to the city of Haran, H-A-R-A-N, which is east, by the way, of Carchemish, and with the help of the Egyptians, they held it for two years. But in 609, there was another combined assault between the Scythians and the Medes on Haran, and it fell. And when that happened, the Assyrians were now defeated, and they had one enemy, Egypt. And so, in the spring of 605, we have... There's a lot of things happening between 609 and 605. But in the spring of 605, the crown prince Nebuchadnezzar, who's the son of Nebo, or Nabo, he made a surprise attack on Carchemish, and he defeated the Egyptians. When he defeated the Egyptians, the Egyptians, which is in Carchemish, which is in northern Syria, they start fleeing down through Syria through Judea and back to home base, which is in Egypt. As they go through Judea and all those kingdoms, who's chasing them? The Medes. All right, Prince Nebuchadnezzar. He's chasing them all, and as they chase them, he lays claim to all of those kingdoms, including the kingdom of Judah. Now, that just didn't happen by chance. We also read in the Bible that God gave them over to some of those things. I'll get to you after I finish this one. But in August of six, in August of 605, Nabo dies, and Nebuchadnezzar takes off through the desert, heads back to, to Babylon, and what's he going to do? He's going to grab that throne like everybody else does, <laughs> okay? He's going to consolidate his power and put himself in. 
Meanwhile, his minions continue on through the area, and we read that King Jehoiakim submitted peacefully to the, to the Babylonian army at that particular time. And I want you to read with me 2 Kings chapter 20, verses 12 through 18. And John, did you want to make a comment real quick? Pharaoh Necho was headed north to help the, the last remnants of the Assyrian armies there in Carchemish. That's when Josiah was killed. Absolutely. And then his sons, of course, became kings, and the rest is terrible history. Yeah, it is. Um, 2 Kings chapter 20. I want to read this, verse 12. At that time, another guy in there, there's all these long names. <laughs> the son of Beladin, king of Babylon, sent letters in a present to Hezekiah. Remember, Hezekiah had been sick, and his life had been extended. And so he sent a present to Hezekiah, and he heard that Hezekiah had been sick. And Hezekiah was attentive to them. He showed them all of the house of his treasures, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious ornament, and all his armory. All that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. And then Isaiah comes knocking on the door. What did you just do? What did you just show them? And where do they say they were from? Well, they said they were from a far country, Babylon. And what have they seen? Everything. I showed them everything. There's nothing that I basically kept from them. They have seen all that is in my house. There's nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. And Isaiah said these words, Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated to this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. They shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah had to say, The word of the Lord which we have spoken is good. He couldn't say it's bad. <laughs> It's good. It's going to happen. And that's exactly what happened. In this very first captivity and the taking away of the people in 605, the first temple treasures were taken to Babylon. The first captives were taken, including Daniel and his three friends. So that's why knowing the background of Babylon, what's been happening, who's in power, and how all this comes about is important. What was written about Hezekiah was written about 100 years before this took place. That's pretty good. That's pretty good prophecy. And that's exactly what took place. Well, the next question is, um, I called him, who was Daniel's government bosses? <laughs> who did he work for while he was over there? He's over there at a young age. He's was, he was among others in Judah, and incidentally, he was also with other people from other countries who were taken to do the exact same thing. It just wasn't Judah and the people from Judah. It was all these places that he was conquering. He wanted all of these people to come to him, and the training was for everybody. But we don't talk about the non-Jewish people. We talk about just about what God is talking to us about. And so we see that he ended up uh, leading numerous or holding government posts under numerous administrations. Not all of these are mentioned. Who are the ones that are mainly mentioned? Nebuchadnezzar in, chapter, in Daniel. 
Nebuchadnezzar, and we come on down here to Belshazzar. Where's this little, the uh, pointer? Right here? Oh, right here. Nebuchadnezzar is mentioned. Belshazzar is mentioned. And sometimes we think, well, he's up here. We're talking, what is that? 605 to 530? I'm a Mac guy. I'm going to see if other, I don't even know how to do that. 61 plus 5. 66 years. 66 years elapsed that he's serving. He's not serving Nebuchadnezzar the entire time. Nebuchadnezzar dies. And when Nebuchadnezzar dies, he's still there serving. And you see that Nebuchadnezzar, who had a son named this guy, he served from 62 to 560 and was assassinated two years later. Somebody else grabbed the throne. And then the brother-in-law to this guy assumed the throne from 560 to 566. Then he died. This guy, this little guy was the infant son of Neri, <laughs> Neri Glissar. And he was slain by co-conspirators because they wanted to put somebody else in his place. And that happened about, I think, three to four, five, six months old, something like that. And then you have Nabonidus. He came to the throne, but he was a guy, it's interesting, he was rarely, historians say he was rarely in Babylon. He left things in charge of his crown prince, Belshazzar. He was known as first in command. Belshazzar was second in command, co-regent. And you remember the story? Who did he make third in command in the book of Daniel? Daniel. Okay, we'll talk about that when we get there. And then in 539, Cyrus, who's the king of the Medo-Persians, turned his attention toward Babylon. And when he did, he defeated Nabonidus on his way to the city of Babylon. It is interesting that Bonatus actually surrendered. Remember, Jeremiah was wanting to get Zedekiah to surrender. Save the city. Save yourselves. This is, this is from the prophet Jeremiah. <clears throat> the Bonatus didn't even have to hear the prophet. <laughs> he just thought, I need to save myself. And so he surrendered, and actually Cyrus put him in charge of another place that Cyrus wanted him to be in charge of. He must have been a pretty good administrator because he served a pretty good time, 556 to 539. And then Belshazzar, the crown prince, he's the one that sees the writing on the wall. We use that expression all the time. And he was killed the very night that he saw that writing. That means Daniel was in Babylon at least 66 years at this particular time, putting him in, in the 80 plus year range when this book uh, ends toward the end of the book, okay? So he worked for a lot of different people, uh, but that didn't stop them. As that was the Babylonians, but once they took over, we had the Medo-Persian Empire. Remember, the Medo-Persians will be the chest of silver in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. And in the Medo-Persian, we have the kingdom of Babylon, which was now, once it was subjected to the uh, Cyrus, king of Persia, but he put that particular area of Babylon under the leadership of Darius, whoa, of, uh, what happened? Darius the Mede, all right? We're going to talk about Darius. He was one of Cyrus's servants. 
not to be confused with Darius the Great, who later ruled over the Persian Empire. He is the Darius in chapter 6, who put Daniel in the lion's den. How old was Daniel when he went to the lion's den? Not 14. 80 plus. Every picture we see of, growing up, of me growing up of Daniel in the lion's den, he looks like this. And he may have been rough and tough and, you know, a John Wayne guy when he was 85. But he was an old man. He was an older man for sure. And, um, and then we're going to see him in chapter 9 again, Darius. King Cyrus, the ruler of the Persian Empire, is mentioned in chapter 10. So all in all, for 70-plus years, he served under two nations, and he interacted with as many as eight rulers in his lifetime. It's a lot of people. I've been in the mil I, I was in the military and now in, in the VA for 40 years. I've seen a lot of presidents. Come and go. This guy saw a lot of emperors come and go. A lot of people that he had to work for and report to. Now, what did he see when he was in Jerusalem? Well, most likely, I'm looking back on his lifetime now because when we stop and reflect on his life and we see what influences were upon Daniel, what did he see, what did he do, where did he go, in his life of 84 years, and he's reflecting back on that, he had a lot of things he could think about. There's a lot of things he potentially saw, a lot of things he potentially heard. He was, if he was, if he was in the 14, 15-year-old range, that means he saw the last years, good years, of King Josiah. When you just look at chronologically at things. Um, he also experienced the terrible, terrible news that Josiah had been killed in battle by the Egyptians, and specifically by the Egyptian archers in 609. He most likely saw Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, become the next king. And then he saw him deposed three months later. Remember, everybody is in and around Jerusalem. All the other cities are gone. There's nothing left. It's just basically Jerusalem. You live there, you don't live anywhere else. They've all been taken. And then he watched Pharaoh. But then he watched Pharaoh replace Jehoiakim, or Jehoahaz with Jehoiakim. And Jehoiakim was made king by Pharaoh Necho in 609, and he reigned 11 years. The battle of Carchemish happened in the fourth year of his reign. And following that battle, and because of Jehoiakim's wickedness, God allowed the Babylonian army to march right in to Jerusalem and take the captives, including Daniel and his three friends. We talked about that a little while ago. While he was in Babylon, he probably didn't see, because he can't see into Jerusalem, but he probably heard some things. Remember, he, as we're going to see, he was well thought of. He was, in a, he was probably in the top of the administration in a lot of things. And so he probably heard a lot of things. I'm kind of speculating on here that he heard probably that Jehoiakim died in 598, specifically 7 December 598, three months before the capture of Jerusalem. He probably heard that Jehoiakim, otherwise called as Jenekiah, was now the high, was now the king of Judah, and he only reigned three months. More than likely, he heard that Jehoiachin surrendered on the 16th of March, 
of 597 to save the city, and he may have even seen Jehoiachin, his family, his officials, and the 10,000 captives who were taken to Babylon in the second wave. He probably heard that Zedekiah was appointed king in Judah by Nebuchadnezzar in 597. And then uh, we talk about a little bit about, uh, I said read Second Chronicles. Why do I want to read? Second, let me flip over there. Second Chronicles, Zedekiah reigns. Oh, yeah. He was uh, 21 when he became king. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. Young guy, and he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. And he rebelled against the king Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear an oath by God, but he stiffened his neck, hardened his heart against turning to the Lord God of Israel. Moreover, all the leaders of the priest and the people transgressed more and more according to all the abominations of the, of the nations and defiled of the house of the Lord, which he had concentrated in Jerusalem. Things were just as worse as they can be in Jerusalem. And he had to hear all that. Finally, I'm sure he heard that Jerusalem was destroyed and burned in 586. He's not someplace nobody that nobody knows. He is an important figure in Babylon. And he's hearing all these things. He has to be. What would you do if you heard all those things? What if you were in Babylon hearing all these things? What if you were part of the captives taken in the first and second wave? And you were hearing about the destruction of your city? How demoralized would you be? Very, very demoralized. What would be going in through your mind, where's God? How come God's not protecting us? Jonathan talked about, well, the reason God's not protecting us is because you forgot God. <laughs> you did everything against God. You forgot everything that God wanted you to do, and now you're blaming me? And he's having to remind them, this is your fault. This was told it was going to happen, and you did exactly what I told you not to do, and I'm doing exactly what I promised to do. And so it's all suffering because of that. And so the place is burned. Jerusalem is destroyed. A few people left of the poor that are there just to take care of the city. Now what's going to happen? What's going to happen during this period? That's probably going to be one of the things we talked about as far as some of the purposes behind Daniel. Daniel is referenced a few times in the Old Testament, specifically in the New Testament. There's a thing in Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 3, where Tyre is being mocked because she thought she was the wiser than Daniel. Uh, it says, uh, Behold, your heart is lifted, and, and you say, I'm a God. This is talking about Tyre. And I sit in the seas of God, in the midst of the seas, that you are a man and not a God, though you set your heart as a heart of God. Verse 3, because, behold, are you wiser? You, no, it's, it's a statement. Behold, you are wiser than Daniel? <laughs> I mean, it's a slap in the face. Contemporary person. Everybody knows who Daniel is. Are you wiser than him? Jesus made reference to Daniel in two places as recorded in Matthew and Mark when he discussed the impending doom of Jerusalem and destruction of Jerusalem. When he talked about the abomination of desolation um, that is mentioned in uh, either Daniel chapter 9 verse 27 or Daniel chapter 12 verse 11. There are other references of influence of the language in Daniel as applied in the New Testament. Jesus often refers to himself as the Son of Man, and Daniel uses that expression a lot. 
especially Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and Revelation contain numerous expressions that Daniel also uses. Now, when you think about that, who's the common writer behind all this? God is. The inspired writer. Does it make sense that God would even use some of the same terminology over and over again to describe certain events? It does. <laughs> Uh, if you take a look at the overview, Daniel is the fourth of the four major Old Testament prophets. I put this particular thing up here. I always like to just, when I do this, remember 512-5512, right? 512-5512 is how you always remember that one. You have the five books of law, the five, 12 books of history, five books of poetry, five major prophets, 12 minor prophets. Daniel fits into that, that category of the five major prophets. As far as an overview of the book itself, the book contains two languages. If, now, when, when David, I'm looking at the book, it does not contain two languages. I mean, I can read it in English because that's our translation. But I'm told, and I've never seen it, that if you were to go take a look at Daniel, the book is actually written in two languages. It's written in Hebrew and Aramaic. The Hebrew portion is the buns of the hamburger. You got the lower, you got the top bun, and you got the bottom bun. And in the middle is the Aramaic meat, all right? So Hebrew, it opens up in the book of, in the Hebrew language from chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 4, in the middle of verse 4. And then it flips into Aramaic in chapter 2, verse 4, through chapter 7, verse 28. And we're going to talk about that when we get there. But it all makes perfect sense. And then after 7 verse 28, it flips again back into Hebrew from chapter basically 8 to the end of the book, chapter 12. Okay? Aramaic is the language that's being spoken in Babylon. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. Written probably around 530 B.C., the author, traditional view is that Daniel is the author. And there are a number of reasons why. that. It's fascinating to read why people debate this back and forth of, you know, what's in the canon, what's not. Uh, ancient Jews believed that he wrote it. Jesus quoted Daniel. The Aramaic language believed is, it, it is believed to be an, an imperial Aramaic found in the text between 700 and 200 B.C. Not after 200, not before 700. And that's what Daniel's written in. Fits exactly what the time frame is. And there's some other several words that appear in Daniel that don't even occur after the use of 300 B.C. Those who oppose Daniel, why do they oppose it? They do not believe in inspiration and, and, and specific predictive prophecy. Now, why do, we, why do we love, in other words, Isaiah says the Savior is going to come 700 years from now. And we look at predictive prophecy and fulfilled prophecy as an evidence that the Bible is inspired of God. If you don't believe in God and you don't believe in inspired prophecy, what do you, are you forced to say then? All of these events had to take place, then you had the knowledge to write it, and then you wrote the book. And that's why some people don't believe Daniel wrote it, because they don't believe God would ever give somebody the ability to write inspired prophecy. And prophetic prophecy. It's that simple. Probably four purposes. The book displays the providential working of God in history. God is superior to any of the outer gods of the heathen nations. 
It is a preview of things to come from Nebuchadnezzar to the setting up of the Messianic kingdom. And it also talks about the sovereignty of God over all potential enemies and circumstances. And the bottom line of that one is God is in control. Nobody is going to stop God from doing what he wants to do. I don't care how big the military is. I don't care who they are. I don't care what they know. God's going to do what he was going to do. And nothing's going to stop him. Period. Now, let's talk about the syllabus. And that will kind of give us an overview. Um, I'm going to say right up front, the timing of the syllabus can change. <laughs> because we may or may not get into something or I may see something I want to spend more time on. Um, if it does, I'll let you know that. But we're going to attempt to get through this in 12 weeks. Uh, tonight, we're doing the overview. Next week, we'll do chapter one. Chapter one is the book. That's, remember, that chapter was written in Hebrew. Uh, and God is going to providentially provide for Daniel and his three friends. This is all about them not defiling themselves, well, not defiling themselves with the king's food. Remember that story. We go to chapter two. It's all about the great image dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. And remember, he had the gold head, the silver chest, the bronze thighs, belly, and then the iron of clay. We'll talk about that. Uh, the 25th is our gospel meeting. Tw uh, the 1st of November, we'll, Lord willing, we'll talk about how God rescues Daniel's three friends from the fiery furnace. Uh, chapter 4, we'll talk about God's ability to interpret another second dream of Nebuchadnezzar, who later praises God after God humbles him when he makes him basically like a beast of the field. Tree going strong, chopped down. What's all that mean? Daniel tells him. Chapter 5, God again enables Daniel to interpret the handwriting on the wall that Belshazzar saw. And that very night, Belshazzar dies. By the way, chapters 1 through 6 are very easy to read. We won't have any problem with them. When we get into chapter 7 through 12, that's when the visions start. And we'll lay down some rules of what we are going to and we're not going to do when we get into that particular area. Okay? One commentator said, this may be the most difficult book. And he's a conservative. If I named him, you would, you would know what I'm talking about. He said it may be one of those difficult books to even um, understand. And then they assigned that to me. Okay. <laughs> but we'll, we'll talk about all that. In chapter 6, uh, God again rescues Daniel from the lion's den. I'm, I'm debating about putting in an historical overview, and this is where some things might change, of the years of silence. Because to understand a lot that's happening in chapter 7, 8, 9, especially 10, 11, and 12, it might be necessary to understand what's going to happen in history so that we can take a look back at it and know, oh, yeah, these things did happen, okay? Because if we start looking at some of these visions and some of the interpretations, it might be helpful to know that. So I'm thinking about doing that on the 29th of November. And then we get into December. Daniel now dreams a dream. He has a vision of the four beasts. It's going to be interesting. Remember, chapter 7 is the last chapter of the Aramaic. And the, we're going to talk about this. The Aramaic has this structure about it that ties it back in. Chapter 7 and 2 are going to be tied together. Chapter 3 and 4 are going to be tied together. Chapter 3, three and 6, and chapter 4 and 5 are going to be tied together. So interesting how that happens. In Daniel chapter 8, we talk about the ram and the male goat or the he goat. Chapter 9 on the 20th, we'll talk about how Daniel prays a prayer, how God answers that prayer, and the 70-week prophecy that he, that he envisions. 
And then what I call chapter 10 through 12, Daniel experiences a long, terrifying third dream. Again, we may break that down into two sessions. I just don't know. We'll find out when we get there. But it's kind of like we went to Gettysburg this year, and they have a panoramic room. They talked about the, Gettysburg, the Battle of Gettysburg. And it's just fascinating. And you start here, and you can look around, and it's just a panoramic view of everything that's happening. And that's kind of what I see of chapters 10 through 12. It's a panoramic vision. It's talking about all these different things, and finally it all wraps up, okay? But it's the longest one, and I will say it's probably the most difficult one to, uh, to look at. Daniel and the interpretation of Daniel has been used in so many different ways by so many different people to predict, vision, to, to predict things that they think are going to happen in the future. Okay? It's in Battle of Armageddon, the ghetto, all these kinds of things. We're not going to get into all that, but suffice it to say, I think we can understand fully that the main purpose of this particular book is to show what God is going to do from the time Nebuchadnezzar lives to the time that he establishes the Messianic kingdom. I don't know if God cares about what happens with the United States or Israel or the country of Israel or other countries around the world. What he cared about and what he designed this book to know is the kingdom that he set up, the kingdom of God. That's what's eternal. That's what's important. And that's what we're going to study. Okay? All right. That's it. I think they're getting ready to come in. Appreciate your time.